So we're talking this morning about, about provocative leadership. And there's a number of corporations, a number of secular leaders who are discovering in their work, in their leadership, the value of love, the value of compassion, the value of knowing their individual employees and sacrificing on their behalf, that that's actually creating a very vibrant culture where leaders emerge and feel supported and feel valued. And Tim Sanders is one of those. He worked for Yahoo as an executive for many years. And he wrote in his leadership book, Love is the Killer App. And he tells a story of a young manager named Steve. Now, Steve decided because he had not stayed in contact with many of his employees on his team, even though they were on the same floor, even though they worked right down the hall from each other, that he hadn't seen some of them for as, up to, uh, as long as up to six months and he wanted to figure out a way to tell them that he actually did value them, even though they hadn't been in face-to-face contact. And so what he decided to do was every so often, every few months, that he would drop by face-to-face with those on his team, and he would tell them, person-to-person, how much he appreciated them, and then tell them just one thing that he thought <clears throat> that they did very excellently. And so after one visit from Steve, one of his software engineers, a man named Lenny, came back a few days later and gave Steve an Xbox. And Steve was floored because he really wanted this Xbox, and he was curious as to how Lenny knew. And he was also floored because Lenny had received a number of pay cuts that particular year. And so he wondered, how could he afford this Xbox, and why would he give it to the boss who had actually enacted those pay cuts? Well, Lenny had money to buy this game, this Xbox, because he had sold his 9mm pistol, a pistol that he had bought months ago with the intention of killing himself. Lenny told him, told Steve of his mother's death the previous year and of his loneliness and depression that seemed just forever present in his life. And so he started this routine. Every night after work, he would go home and he would eat a bowl of ramen, he would turn Nirvana on the stereo, and he would get the gun out. And for a few months, it was just sitting empty. It took him courage of a number of months to build up the courage to actually buy the bullets. And then another month or so to actually uh, load the gun. And then another month to actually put the gun into his mouth. And he says that before Steve came to him, that he had begun to put slight pressure on the trigger. And he says, I was this close to pulling the trigger But he tells Steve, last week, you freaked me out. You came into my cubicle, put your arm around me, and told me you appreciated me because I turn in all my projects early, and that that helps you to sleep at night. You also said that I have a great sense of humor over email, and that you are glad I came into your life. That night I went home, ate ramen, and listened to Nirvana. But when I got the gun out, it scared me silly for the very first time. All I could think about was what you said, that you were glad I came into your life. The next day, I went back to the pawn shop and sold the gun. And I remembered that you had said that you wanted an Xbox, but with a new baby at home, you couldn't afford it. And so for my life, you get this gun. Thanks, boss. You see, Steve was a leader but not in the traditional sense that we tend to think, because he wasn't a leader who stormed beaches. He wasn't a leader who led an enormous corporation. He wasn't extremely charismatic. He wasn't even necessarily super intelligent. 
He simply chose to take the time to love the people that were in his care and to recognize and enhance their intrinsic value, what they brought to this company. And he saved a guy's life by a simple but very profound act of leadership. Now, what kind of words come into your mind when you think about church leadership? Well, you don't have to read very far into your news feeds every morning to hear about misuse of power in the church, misappropriation of funds, church leaders who are living double lives and are being found out. Or maybe for you, church leadership has a very negative connotation because you've been hurt personally by someone in the church, maybe a leader. And so maybe the idea of church leadership conjures up ideas of abuse or manipulation, authoritarian or disappointment. And if you've been in the church very long and all, you probably do have disappointments. I have disappointments with leaders in churches that I've been a part of. And frankly, I've disappointed people. People are disappointed at me as a church leader. So these words, probably more than most Sundays, are more directed at me necessarily than you. They're taking their aim right at me. So what we think of when church leadership is mentioned is different than what Peter thinks of. And what does he think of? What word comes to mind for him? Well, that word is shepherd. That a church leader is to be a shepherd. And why was this the word that came to mind for him? Well, it was because he knew Jesus. It was because Jesus, his Savior, his leader, described himself as a shepherd of the sheep as a shepherd of the flock of God's people. And in the passage that we read just earlier in the liturgy, in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Peter had heard Jesus talk numerous times about being the shepherd. And he was likely familiar with these Old Testament symbols that talked about this one who would come from the the line of David and be a kingly shepherd for God's, God's people. But Jesus was unlike any other shepherd. Because see, what is being a shepherd? A shepherd is a job. A shepherd is an occupation. You don't go out and work with sheep just because you think they're cute and they're soft. They're not pets. It's your job to be a shepherd. I guess they can be pets, especially in Portland. But You are a shepherd out of economic self-interest. They provide you wool to sell. They provide you meat to eat. They sometimes provide uh, for milk. But Jesus is a shepherd in a completely different way. You see, instead of the, the sheep serving his interests, he lays down his life for the sheep. The shepherd dies on behalf of the sheep in his flock. Even a sheep, a recalcitrant renegade, ragtag sheep like Peter, who denied Jesus, who walked away from him in his moment of deepest need. It was Jesus, it was this shepherd who called, who discipled, who taught, who instructed, who disciplined, and then finally died for Peter. So when he thinks, when he thinks about the image of a leader, of church leadership. He thinks of shepherd. 
Now, what does this tell us? Just two quick things. What does this tell us about ourselves? And what does this tell us about the leaders that we need? And what does it tell, how does it instruct those of us who are leaders, formal or informal? Well, first of all, it tells us about ourselves that we are attached people. We are attached to the shepherd through the other sheep in the sheep pen. Peter tells us in verse 2 that the elders are to be responsible, as I said earlier, when the files were joining, that they are to be responsible for a particular flock of people. They're to be responsible for a particular sheep pen. That they are given charge of a group of believers in a specific place, in a specific church. And so this means that when you become a Christian, whether you like it or not, you're attached to a certain flock of people. And there's mutual responsibilities that exist. Bruce Milne was a pastor in Vancouver for many years. I think he's retired now, but he says, talking about the passage in John that we read, the experience of Peter being forgiven clears the way for serving Jesus, for Peter serving Jesus. Peter is restored and Peter is recommissioned. And Jesus' concern here is not simply for Peter's welfare and self-confidence. He is also genuinely concerned for his fledgling church. So Peter is directed to his work, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. Following Jesus and loving Jesus means accepting responsibility for Jesus' people, a truth which is in need of rehabilitation at the present time. Commitment to Christ involves commitment to the church of Christ. Jesus Christ is not a single person in the sense that he comes to us without other attachment. He is a married person. He comes to us with a bride whom he loves. And to be in relationship to Christ while ignoring or even despising his bride is no more acceptable than such behavior would be in human context when relating to a married friend. Far less so because the relationship with Jesus has infinitely greater dimensions. And then one last part. Genuine New Testament conversion means not only turning to and accepting Christ, it also means turning to and accepting his bride, the church. Jesus' love for his church remains undiminished even though the church be torn, ill-clad, and dirty in places, and generally malnourished and diseased. The church is still his bride, the people for whom he died, and who are therefore the burden of his concern. Does that resonate with you or does that shock you and scare you? You know, the Bible doesn't say a lot directly about church membership. It says a lot by implication, but not a lot directly. There's no long passages about why you should be a member and here's how to become a member and so forth. And perhaps that's because This was sort of second nature. Of course, we're to be members of a church. Of course, it makes sense that we would gather because we live in such a dangerous location. We need one another so badly that they didn't need a great deal of instruction. They just lived in community. And if you go to many Asian churches today, if you go to many African churches, this sort of thing almost doesn't need to be said because they get it. But in our Western individualistic culture, this sort of arranged marriage, that we are married to Christ's bride by virtue of being a Christian, this is a threat to our individuality. It's a threat to our autonomy. It's a threat to, it diminishes our choices. 
what Peter is saying here is less of a command and more of an observation of what actually already is. That Jesus is the shepherd and there is a, there is a particular flock of people over which Jesus is shepherd, that is, that is all Christians. But then that there are under-shepherds who are given responsibility to lead in certain particular locations. And if we're honest about who we are, if we're honest that we are sheep, that we'll begin to see this not necessarily as a command that we must discipline ourselves to follow. It's something that we'll begin to see as good and necessary and something we'll long for and reach out to because we need it so badly. What does this tell us about ourselves? First of all, that we're attached people. And then secondly, that we're contingent people. Peter is addressing his readers, his audience, and their congregations that are under great threat. They're under great peril. They're under great persecution. And what he's doing is he's reminding them of the structure of support and care that can take care of them, that can hold them together, that can help them continue to walk towards Jesus and to hold on to Jesus in spite of the dangers that doing so leads to. He wants to tell them, he wants to tell us about this structure of support and care so that we as individuals can continue to walk towards Jesus and that the church can continue to bear witness in their community. And isn't he saying when he appoints elders to care for the flock that we in the flock are in fact in need of that care? Isn't he saying that we're vulnerable, dependent, contingent people who need sacrificial leadership of trusted elders to support and encourage us? In verse 5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to the elders. And younger here isn't a designation of age. It's simply a designation of those members who aren't elders, those members who don't have a formal leadership role in the church. Submit yourselves to your elders. It's easy for me to say that from up here, right? But why is Peter saying this? And what is he trying to convey? It's not this blind submission. It's not a a hierarchy, a military chain of command by which you are responsible to obey everything that an elder in your life has to say. But friends, it's certainly got to be more than just, I'll follow you when I agree with you. I'll follow you when it doesn't demand too much of me. Have you ever considered asking a pastor or an elder to intervene in a relationship that's struggling? Does it occur to you, first of all, when you have a need at work, a conflict at work, to go and ask a pastor or an elder what they think, how you can navigate through that at work? Have you ever considered asking a leader at your church about maybe your college choices? What should I major in? Where should I go to school? What would be most prosperous for me? What about how to be more generous with your money or your time? What about whether you should take a job that's going to change your family life, going to change your relationship with your church? Does it occur to you to to go and talk to a pastor? Come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the other elders. Most of you don't know this, but I went to law school for three weeks. (laughs) I was miserable from day one. I hated it. 
And there are attorneys here that I'm sure get a great kick out of being attorneys, but I had planned to go to law school for a long, long time, and day one I thought I've made the biggest tiny mistake ever. I was paralyzed, however, by fear because this was supposed to be my career. And Katie and I had just gotten married a few months ago, and so I thought, there is no way, I've got to stick it out. And I had all these different voices, all of these different opinions that I had to kind of put in a pot and stir it. But it didn't help, because I was scared, I was paralyzed, I didn't know what to do. And so Katie and I decided to take a day of prayer. She took a day off work, and we went and did some prayer walking and so forth. And I think it was her idea to go and talk to our pastor. Now, we didn't have an appointment, and this was a fairly large church, and so I thought, there's no way we're going to be able to see him today. And so we went into his office, and there was like four people in the waiting room waiting to see them. And when we talked to the secretary, he was like, oh, go on in. Go on in and talk to him. And so after 10 minutes of laying out our situation and talking about motivations to go to school and what I was struggling with and so forth, he said in his very folksy way, well, I don't see any reason why you're in law school. It's easy for him to say, right? But we felt stuck. And at Katie's leading, I believe, she said, why don't we go and talk to Frank? And we'll just kind of go with what he says. Because why? Because he is our pastor. He's been appointed as a leader over us. Now, maybe it was a bit foolhardy to give that much you know, power to one particular voice, but we needed someone to weigh in with authority. We needed someone who we felt like God had put in our lives specifically in that moment to help us. So I'm not saying in that example that any of you should follow your leadership blindly. Of course not. But we all need trusted leaders formal and informal, in our lives for situations like that and just everyday situations as we seek to navigate life and seek to bear witness to who Jesus is. And of course, we need to remember that elders are sheep too. You see, we're contingent people. We're dependent upon Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We need a vital connection with the shepherd because what is true of sheep you probably are thinking, well, they're dumb. If you've been to church, I've heard this a hundred times in a sermon, that you're a sheep, and because you're a sheep, you're dumb, because sheep are dumb. But sheep are not dumb. And I have this on authority from a, a sheep herder in New Zealand. He says this is pushing this way too far, that sheep are dumb compared to people, but they're not dumb compared to other animals. In, quite, in fact, they're quite intelligent. They're like uh, a typical border collie. And they can learn things, and they can be friendly, and they, but they're not dumb. Sheep are dumb compared to people, but not compared to animals. And God isn't using the sheep metaphor to berate you and I for being dumb. In fact, Jesus says in another place for us to be wise as serpents. So why use sheep? Well, even though they're smart relative to other, other farm animals, they do need a shepherd. Sheep are contingent animals. They're dependent upon the shepherd for protection, for care, for feeding and taking care of them. And you and I need the care of shepherds. You and I need the care and the protection and the leadership from trusted, informal, and formal leaders. 
We need the collective wisdom of leaders speaking into our lives. We need people who are walking towards Jesus and are able to take us by the arm and say, come on, just a little farther. You can do it. We need people like that in our lives. So that's what it tells us about who we are, that we are attached people, that we're contingent people. There's a lot more that we could say, but let me wrap up just one more point. What does this tell us about the leaders that we need? What does this tell us to those of us who are leaders, about the type of leaders that we are to be? And frankly, all of us are in a leadership role in some fashion. But I want to talk particularly here to those who are appointed leaders. Peter gives us three contrasts. He gives us categories for the the type of leadership that we're to seek out and those of us in leadership, the type of leadership that we're to cultivate. And the first one is in verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. So leaders are to act in conformity with God's own manner of leadership, not as one who's obligated, who must lead, not as one who rules over the sheep, but one who considers it natural, one who considers it a privilege to place their lives underneath the lives of other people. Secondly, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. In the ancient world, gifts were often given um, following a very specific social script. You invited people into your home that could reciprocate that invitation. You gave gifts to someone, and that created this sort of social indebtedness that you expected to be paid back. And it gave you authority and power over that person until you were paid back. And what Peter is doing is undermining that sort of social script, and he's calling that a false type of service, that leaders are not to consider what they are to gain, what they may receive in return for serving and leading, but to do it as Jesus does without the expectation of repayment. And then there's one final contrast, and it's between authoritarianism and leading by example. Being a dictator, ruling with an iron fist, and leading as a model. He says, not lording it over, in verse 3, those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Jesus, you see, is the chief shepherd, and elders are under-shepherds in a particular location. Jesus is the pattern And the elders are simply models. They're to emulate Jesus as the chief shepherd. And so their leadership, our leadership, is realized insofar as we embody the character of Christ. And what does that look like? Well, we looked at it months ago in chapter 2, but for Peter, writing this, he probably wrote it less than an hour ago. What's in his mind as he thinks about the character of Jesus? This type of shepherd committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that they might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. The practices of leadership are measured by the conformity to the courageous, enduring leadership, sacrificial leadership of Jesus. Our leadership is enacted and becomes effective insofar as we model his humility 
and his selflessness. And this is encouraging. It should be for all of us because you don't have to be the most intelligent person in the room. You don't have to be the most eloquent person. You don't have to be the best looking person, clearly. You don't have to have all this great charisma or be successful in the business world. But you lead simply out of your character. You lead simply by knowing Jesus and growing in conformity with him. That's the qualification. I need to wrap up. So one more small thing in conclusion. He says in verse 5, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. And then he says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. All of you. Do you know what all means in the Greek? It means all. I went to seminary to learn that so I could teach you things like that. All of you, not just pastors, not just elders, but deacons, Sunday school teachers, musicians, staff, people who sweep up, all of you clothe yourself with humility. And this is radical because in the ancient world, your exterior clothing was what gave you your status. That's what broadcast your worth and your, your station in the city. In the church, friends, we may serve different functions. We may preach. We may sing. We may hand out bulletins. We may sweep up. But they're all just as valuable and just as necessary. We may serve different functions, but our status, our standing is all the same. Our value is the same because you're clothed not primarily with your role or your function, but you're clothed with humility. You're clothed with your posture of humility that says, I am a sheep. I need a shepherd. And if you're a Christian this morning, it's because you've humbled yourself under His mighty hand so that He can lift you up. You're saying as a sheep that I can't do life on my own. I need a shepherd. And I need other human shepherds by which He leads me through them. And we're saying, I can't rescue myself. I can't protect myself. I can't save myself. But Jesus, would you rescue me? Would you care for me? Would you lift me up? Would you shepherd me? Would you save me? And that's really, and finally, the point of this passage for all of us is that we need the chief shepherd to come into our lives, to care for our souls. And so as we continue to worship, would you consider that if you've been a Christian for many times, you know Jesus as the chief shepherd, recommit yourself to living under his care and his protection and his guidance. If you've never done that, then consider what would it be like to come to know a shepherd, a king who is self-sacrificial, who gives up his life on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we continue to worship, as we confess our faith, as we come to the table, that you would guide us, that you would embrace us as the chief shepherd, that you care for our souls so much more than often we do, always more than we do. And so, Father, I pray that we would give up trying to care for ourselves, trying to lead ourselves, trying to protect ourselves, and give over that responsibility to you. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.